My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and an MBA graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, we'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Today, we have the opportunity to connect with Crystal Trejo-Green. How are you, Crystal? I'm doing well. Awesome. Now, you are... Uh, what's your title with the, the society? Are you on the board or an advisor or... I'm one of the executive directors along with nice. Davis and Eduardo and a handful of other people. Nice. And your voice is one of the many that you... that listeners will sometimes hear at the beginning of a, of an episode uh, introducing the, the society to maybe those less familiar. But uh, so how did you get looped into all this? When I had applied to Oxford, but not yet started the program. So I took a, a year and I deferred a year after I got married to give my husband some time to figure out his job arrangements. Um, during that time, I attended an LDS MBA conference in Chicago at Chicago Booth. And it was fantastic. It was there that my husband and I started feeling like we'd moved to Utah after the MBA. And it was also there that I learned about the society and got to listen to a lot of really inspiring speakers, some who were members of the church, some who were not. Um, And that's where I first learned about the society. After that, they started a fellowship program and asked for applicants. So I applied for the fellowship program during my MBA and helped with some of the um, digital projects that they had going on for the society. I worked with Eduardo and Davis and doing that. And after my work doing that was invited to a board meeting with some of the amazing board members Um so, some who I had met prior, one who had been on a humanitarian trip with me, Andrea Thomas. During that meeting, they kept talking about the goals of the organization. And the one that had gotten me really interested was this goal to get more LDS women interested in MBAs and in business leadership. Um, so Davis and Eduardo and several others were talking about this mission. There are a lot of really amazing female business leaders who are on the board, but none who are executive directors. And after the meeting, Eduardo, who is just a humble, amazing leader, asked me, how do you think that went? I was an MBA (laughs) student at the time. I said, I think it went great. Um, But I think it's a little ironic that you have all executive directors who are male talking about this goal of having more female MBAs, more female leaders. (laughs) Nice, you called them out. (laughs) And then he called me out and said, well, do you want to be on the board? <laughs> he said, do you want to be one of the executive directors? I was taken aback because I didn't really feel totally qualified. But I said, if it's, you know, if it's a hard work you need, I'm happy to join. And I'd love to be in another one of those meetings. So that's how I got involved. Nice. Very cool. So let's uh, just lay a foundation of some of your background. Uh, I mean, growing up that, you know, in, in junior high and high school was a, a business school path always in your future as you saw it? Or or when did that start to develop for you? So not at all. Um, I 
always loved school, always loved learning. Um, when I was studying in junior high and high school, I really enjoyed my English classes. I liked all my classes, but I really enjoyed my English classes. And I remember reuniting with a friend from high school when we were both in college. And he said, I cannot believe you're, you're not an English major. So when I went to college, I kind of, but at that same time, while I was loving my English classes, I was always really involved with student government. So when I went to college, I thought I would do broadcast journalism because of this kind of combined interest in storytelling and literature, but also this interest in current events and politics. Um, Harvard didn't have a journalism program. And so when I got in, I started rethinking what I was going to study. They, um, they had an English program and they had a, a program called government. And so I went back and forth between those two majors a lot, decided I'd study government and thought I would go into local politics in Arizona. So I got a minor in Spanish, thought it would be relevant um, and plan to go to law school and then work in local politics. Oh, wow. <laughs> and my, my path changed quite a bit. I ran for president of the student body at Harvard and I got second place. It's a close race. Um, <laughs> but during that race, I interacted with a lot of kind of the complexity and difficulty that comes along with people who are really, really passionate about their political positions. And I started rethinking my idea to become a politician. And um, after graduating from Harvard, I went and worked for Humanitarian Experience for Youth as a program manager and um, was still thinking law school. But as I went through the application process for law programs, I kept thinking about the elements of my job at HEFY that I enjoyed. And they were tied to leadership and they were tied to management and they were tied to budgets. And all of a sudden, I thought, I feel disingenuous writing these law school application essays. Um, I went to, to some of the business school application prompt, essay prompts, and was excited to think about those topics, was excited to think about leadership and people management. And that's when it hit me. Like, I, I didn't know very many people who'd gotten an MBA, but that's when it hit me. This is totally my thing. Yeah. Like, this creativity and leadership and a lot about an MBA does have this very creative element that kind of connected to my interest in literature and English and, and um, communication and, and writing are also really useful skills in the business world. So... That's how it all came together, my decision to to um, pursue an MBA. Nice. Nice. And, and uh, so th a lot of people I interview on the on the podcast here, they typically are talking about uh, going to Harvard, you know, for business school, but you went uh, for your undergrad. And was is there a story behind uh, deciding to go and being accepted to Harvard? I had no grand plan. I didn't know a single person who'd attended Harvard. I didn't know where Harvard was located. My grand plan through middle school and high school was to get my college completely funded through scholarships. Um, that's what my parents expected of me. And they gave me a lot of <laughs> um, a lot of freedom and a lot of opportunities to not do chores around the house with this expectation. Like, okay, you don't have to do the dishes because we know you're doing your homework. We're not paying for college, so do well. Um, oh, nice. 
Yeah. So that was my plan. And then applying to Harvard came about through um, conversations with people who I would call mentors. They're really just fellow high school students. A guy two years before me, so he graduated two years before me, had applied to Notre Dame and gotten in. And that was a really big deal for the school where I went. And then a guy just a year ahead of me um, applied to Harvard, Yale, the, all the elite schools. And it was eye-opening. He didn't get in, but he walked me through the steps of how you would apply, which is completely different than how you apply to the state schools. And so it opened my mind, told me, first off, you can, you can apply to these schools and this is how you do it. I think that that's a conversation that changed my course. And it's one that I've tried to have with people who are interested in attending elite schools um, who might not understand the way to apply or how to tell their story. Because I think it's, it's those conversations that really give you the nuance to know how to be successful in applying. So applied to Harvard, got in. Um, and then for me, it was a really big decision to go because I had no understanding of where I was going. I didn't know anyone in that part of the country, but I prayed a lot about it. Um, and then took a step in that direction and, and um, really, really enjoyed Harvard. And here's my little plug for Harvard undergrad. Uh-huh. I was a student recruiter. And then, uh, so for LDS students, thinking about elite undergraduate educations, think about how many LDS students there are at that school and in the area. And in at Harvard and in the Boston area, there are a lot. So Harvard typically has about 30 LDS undergrads. And then they are part of a larger um, ward that's made up of people from all of the schools in the area. There are tons of schools in the Boston area. So our ward usually had 140, 150 active students who are constantly cycling. And so I had a really like vibrant LDS single experience while I was at Harvard. That's Mm -hmm. not the case at all the Ivy Leagues, but I was lucky enough to be in that kind of environment, which was really positive for me and, and awesome to see a lot of like intellectual, artistic um, students living their faith. Yeah. Yeah. It was almost like a, an additional networking opportunity because you get not just Harvard students that you're interacting with, but some other uh, elite school student body. Yeah. And, and good for dating and stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. and, is that where you met your husband or? <laughs> it's no, no, it's not. <laughs> but we did meet through a connection who I met in Boston. Right. So there you go. So it worked yeah. out. It worked out. So awesome. Well, um, I definitely want to get into the principles you, you sent me um, uh, for, you know, in preparation for this interview, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned a little bit as far as like, you know, women taking, going down this path of business school and being in, you know, professional business careers and whatnot. And, um, and you talk about, you know, Eduardo, even in this context of this serving on this, this board as an executive director, like it's easy to just be like, well, why not you? Right. And sometimes the, the, it takes a, a woman to raise her hand and say, Hey, this, there's a little imbalance here. And so they say, well, why not you? Um, any, anything you'd add to that as far as like encouraging women to be, to actually consider these things, uh, you know, a, a professional uh, business career or, or schooling? 
I thought a lot about this in preparing to talk to you, Kurt. Yeah. And I have four sisters. We've all taken different paths. I guess what I would say is be ambitious as you're planning. Mm. And, and be ambitious from the beginning. Don't stop yourself from pursuing big things because you think that later on you're going to take a break to be a mom um, or you're going to take a break for some other reason. Something like almost 50% of the Utah workforce is female. And so regardless of your plan, it's very likely as a woman that at some point you're going to have a career. And when you think about that, if you have a career and you have children, the thing that makes it really hard to manage your life is finding good childcare. But I thought, I thought a lot about this when I was going to get an MBA because my husband was older. I was a little bit older. I wasn't thinking about having kids at a super young age anyway. Um, but I figured with my undergraduate education, I was going to be making five figures. And to pay for good childcare with five figures after taxes can actually be challenging. Yeah. The other element is the more educated you are and the further you are on your career path, the easier it can be to negotiate a good working situation um, so that you can balance career and family. And I think that's true for any parent, male or female. So it's a maybe the the one big benefit of getting married and having kids a little later. Yeah. <laughs> or at least move move fast through your career, you know, be thinking like at some point I'm going to have kids. I want to spend time with them. Let me be at a point where I can I can negotiate for time off. I can negotiate to get out of that meeting. I can negotiate for a half day off on Friday. That's what my husband's done to spend more time with our kids. Um you have more negotiating power if you're further on in your education, if you have um, some leadership roles. That actually played out for me pretty well. So it sounds like that a lot of this, you know, goes back to that principle of ambition, right? That, you know, even through their undergrad applications, like you were ambitious in that process. And the more ambitious you are, it sets you up to have some of that negotiating power later on when, yeah, you do want to have a little more autonomy with your your family life and the time you have available there and, and whatnot. And so it's only going to help the more ambitious an individual gets and and uh, the further along in their career they they go. Don't cut your legs out from under you, but you know, yeah. Keep keep running as fast as you can as long as you can. Um and then you'll have more power to negotiate later. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good, <laughs> that wasn't on my six principles. <laughs> <laughs> well, that works, but that, let's jump into those those principles, and I'm sure more of these uh, related topics will will come up um, as we go. But the first one you put down is uh, work hard wherever you're at. I think about this in in two contexts. The first was the summer after my sophomore year of college. I was going to be doing a combination of Harvard Summer School overseeing a dorm at Harvard Summer School. Then I was working as a tour guide to make some extra money. So the overseeing the dorm would pay for my living expenses. Then I was working as a tour guide to make some extra money. And then I was working at a legal aid bureau for some professional experience because I wanted to go into law. It was a mishmash of random things. And 
I didn't know how it was going to compare to my, some of my colleagues' summer experiences. I brought this up to my bishop, who happened to be a, a very smart man and a, a Harvard professor. He had been an advisor to several U.S. presidents. So he was good at offering advice. Nice. And <laughs> he told me, no matter where you are in life, you do your best and you'll be able to learn. So it doesn't really matter. He said he spent a summer doing some kind of random odd job during college. It was like cleaning windows or, and, and he spent the whole summer doing it. And it was a summer where he learned and he grew and he developed more grit and he earned some money for school. Don't discount your experiences. Every experience is important and offers an opportunity for learning. I had heard this concept before. My mom had always said this, this, um, thing when we would go to school that only only boring people get bored. My mom was a preschool teacher <laughs> and then a, a first grade and second grade teacher. And she heard a lot of parents say, my child is so smart that they misbehave. My child is so smart. I'm just so nervous that they're going to get bored in class. And she said, well, if they're a smart kid, if they're curious about the world, they'll find ways to help their teacher They'll find new books to read. They'll find problems to solve. They'll use their imaginations, but they should never get bored. To me, this is, I hear mom saying the same thing now that I'm a mom. I am so afraid my child will get bored. And I think to myself, make sure they can read. If they can read. They should never get bored. If they can see the people around them and observe them, there's so many fascinating things about the people around us. We should be fascinated by the world we're living in. And no matter where you're at, you should work hard. Um, and right now, so I've taken a break from full-time work and every day I feel like there are just fascinating things to learn. So I have this massive book list I'm working through. When I had my second child, I decided to become a pseudo expert on natural childbirth and it was fascinating wow. and it was really, really fun. And then, um, I'm on my HOA board, which is also surprisingly complex and interesting. And um, I've worked very hard doing this. And is it a waste of my MBA education? I don't think so. I, I think it's a way, I think I'm bringing a lot of value to a neighborhood I plan to live in for a long time. And so that work is valuable and, and you should work hard and, and be interested in what you're doing, no matter where you go. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. I, I love it. Next principle we put down is listen to mentors to make leaps. And you, you sort of mentioned earlier the uh, the influence of mentors that helped you, you know, apply to Harvard and and be ambitious there. So anything else as far as uh, how listening to mentors has helped you on your path? Yeah, so I think like even if you tell someone be ambitious, especially for certain people and and you know, in the research, it shows women tend to assess their own skills much lower. If you tell them be ambitious, they'll see a certain goal and they'll think they qualify for a certain set of, of um, opportunities. Talking to mentors and developing a network of people who are more exceptional than yourself or more ambitious than yourself helps you to move past what you see as your goals and limits and maybe go a step beyond or five steps beyond. And so that was my experience with the young man from high school who taught me about applying to elite colleges. That was the experience with a mentor I had 
um, at Humanitarian Experience for Youth. He was the founder and he's the one who, who first told me about the Oxford MBA program and told me about a lot of directions I could go as he watched me and mentored me and um, kind of pointed me in some good directions. And then a final mentor was in my first post-MBA role at Qualtrics. And he continues to be a mentor. My manager there, Paul Sheets, um, welcomed me back after maternity leave, kept offering me challenges. And when he saw that I had an interest in data and analytics, he lined me up for an opportunity that would help me to grow and learn in that area, managing a team of data scientists, analysts, um, automations engineers. And it was so exciting to jump to that role that I had told him, I'm not sure if I'm ready for this because it, it was a role that made me think this, this might be the direction I want to go like in a big way. And he saw that interest and helped me make a big jump. So surround yourself by people who see, who are more ambitious than you and who can push you to, to greater things than you would imagine on your own. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so any advice as far as how you, you know, go about creating mentorship relationships? I mean, do they sort of, have they sort of organically come to the surface for you just in, in different, you know, job opportunities you've had? Or how, how would you advise someone to actually gain more mentorship uh, relationships? So I think it goes back to the first principle, work hard wherever you're at. If you're working hard, you will um, be drawn to and draw in other people who are working hard with you. And they tend to be great mentors. So that's how I met my first mentor who I mentioned from high school. We were both in student government together. He, he had been on the state student government board and then I joined that board. And so we ended up being on a road trip together, road tripping to the state government board. The second one, again, it was um, the founder of an organization and he saw how hard I was working, um, how much I enjoyed kind of the leadership management elements of my role. And then the third one, I was really intentional when I applied to jobs post-MBA to understand the culture of the team I was moving to. Um, one of the reasons I left um, Humanitarian Experience for Youth was because I didn't feel like I had a mentorship network. It was a really small organization at that point, and I was really young. So I didn't have a boss over me when I was the director, and I wanted more peers and a a dedicated manager who would help to guide me and mentor me. And so through the interview process, I worked a lot with Paul, um, or I, I spoke a lot to Paul and I spoke to people who I was going to, um, who were going to be horizontal to me in the organization. So other managers, and I thought these people are way smarter than me. And, and that's what you should look for in a post MBA role or in any role to be surrounded by people who are, as smart or smarter than you who have more experience and can point you in a good direction. Yeah. And, and I'm curious by this, this point you make that you were very intentional as far as understanding the culture before, you know, joining or as you were applying or considering a job. So how do you go about that? Understanding the culture before, you know, being a part of it? Well, Qualtrics has a really in-depth interview process. So you have like five interviews and then you have a site visit. And so it makes it easy, but even the way you're treated during the interview process, what's the tone during emails? Are they respectful of your time? Um, are they respectful of each other? Do the people who are interviewing 
interviewing you know each other? Are they organized? Um, these are all indications of the culture. I interviewed with another organization and got an offer with them and they were, they were pretty disorganized and not very respectful of my time. I always had to follow up to see where we were in the interview process. And, and it was, it seemed much less transparent, their culture, um, very kind of stiff professional, mm-hmm. a lot less personality being brought to the table. So I think you get a feel for it through the interview process. And if you network before interviewing, which I hadn't done, then you, well, I had done that. Actually, I, I spoke to someone, I had met someone at the LDS MBA conference who pointed me in the direction of Qualtrics. He was working in a role. He's the one who recommended the role. I had forgotten about this. And he gave me a very candid assessment of the culture there, not just the company culture, but the team culture and um, how that particular manager was to work for. Hmm. Nice. Nice. That's helpful. Um, before I move on to your, to your next principle, I, I sort of, I don't, I, I kind of glazed over your, your uh, actual MBA schooling when I, which was at, at Oxford. And if I understand it right, it was sort of under unique circumstances um, because weren't you pregnant through most of that? experience so i was pregnant in the third like trimester okay. the third, yeah <laughs> so uh, maybe tell us about your trimester time between through third term of school was yeah. my first trimester <laughs> That's oh, nice. What it was. <laughs> nice. so between graduating from harvard and deciding to go to oxford you you mentioned you were working for a youth development or what was what were you working for so i was working for a humanitarian organization that sends Latter-day Saint teenagers to um, developing countries with the purpose of changing their lives through service and and strengthening or developing a testimony in Jesus Christ. Nice. So what was the, the uh, intent between Harvard and Oxford? And then when, when did you decide that Oxford was the place? Yeah. So again, as an undergrad, I thought when I graduated, I would apply to law school. So Um, I got recruited by Humanitarian Experience for Youth, and um, first I applied to be a summer trip leader, thinking it would just be like a two-week gig, leading a group of teens in Ecuador. And um, through that interview process, they said you might be good for a full-time role. So I interviewed with them for that and loved that I'd be able to use... I got a minor in Spanish. It's called a secondary. Um, So use my Spanish, improve that, travel, uh, make money and work for a cause I believed in, which is um, developing testimonies in Jesus Christ. And so my first year at HAFY, I was the, I was a program manager and there had just been a big exodus of employees. So it was just me working with the executive director for like the first six months. So I answered phones, I moved desks, I did whatever needed to be done. And like, that was a big wake up call because you think you're going to have some glamorous job when you graduate (laughs) from college. And it was a lot of answering phones, moving desks. So, um, but I got to travel a lot with the executive director and, and work closely with her. And so at the end of the year, she decided to leave the organization. And I 
was very familiar with every program because of all of the travel I'd done with her. And I was actually very familiar with what most of the roles in the organization did since I was doing a lot of those roles. Um, So the organization grew while I was there. I was the executive director for two and a half years. And um, during that time, it almost doubled in size. And one of the big things we did was shift the structure so that it um, could function without outside donations and was more sustainable. And I worked closely with the founders of the organization to develop that new structure. And um, in doing that was when I, I kind of realized I wanted to get an MBA. Um, at the time, the founders were actually going to an executive program at Oxford. And they told me, like, Oxford, this program is awesome. Like, you get to be part of the the you know ancient traditions of being an Oxford student. There are these beautiful libraries, incredible people. Um, plus, the Oxford program is just one year. And that really turned on a light in my head because I was dating my now husband and trying to figure out, is it better to you know, go to a two-year MBA when we're dating and be away from him or better when we're married. Um, his job was pretty fixed in the Western US. And so taking him along for the ride was going to be tricky. Um, <laughs> so I ended up applying to Oxford, getting into Oxford. Um, and then my husband and I got engaged. And at that point, I decided I would defer for a year. And he said he'd be able to negotiate with his work to, to figure out something to do. He's a physician and was he's just honestly having a great partner is amazing because he is just like a creative, adventurous, fun husband and, and was excited to go. So he spent um, half, half of the time I was in Oxford with me and half the time um, working on his practice. He moved to Utah that year and... and um, so the one year thing was really a big deal. And then the Oxford Said program focuses on social impact. So they pull in a lot of people with social impact backgrounds. Um, and so I, I felt that I would fit in with the class and that I would be thinking about business challenges in the same way and learn a lot from my classmates also about, about how to do business and also do good at the same time. So that appealed to me as well. Nice. And, um, and so your, your program and then, um, any advice as far, I mean, maybe for other, you know, individuals, as far as, you know, how do you manage time and obviously taking care of yourself as you're pregnant uh, during a very intense business uh, program? I was pretty pragmatic about what business school would look like for me from some people I hear, Oh, it's, you know, the most fun social two years of your life, super easy. An MBA is just all about the connections you make. And like one of the things I liked about Oxford was that I could take this super accelerated path. I didn't have a a traditional business background. And so my goal was to take really challenging classes and learn all of the business fundamentals in the year I was there. I reached out because I had that gap year in between. I did some consulting during that year, but because I had that gap year, I reached out to um, some people at Oxford and said, how do I best use this year? And they told me, figure out what you want to do after the program before you arrive and start networking with the people you want to hire you so that they can 
take part in helping you design your, your MBA education. Most MBA programs have you know, a two-year program. And so your first year, you're working towards an internship and your second year, you're working towards your full-time job. So in a one-year program, if you're competing against U.S. applicants for roles, you're, you're going to be competing against people who've already had their internship and who've already had a year of MBA experience. And, um, and so I followed that advice. I started networking before I got to Oxford I tried to understand which classes I needed to take to be really competitive. And then in the fall of my MBA experience, I started slacking and getting really, you know, caught up in my classes and really fascinated what I was doing. And one of my classmates said, like, remember jobs, like this is our moment. Fall is when, um, companies recruit. And, and, um, so just, stretch yourself thin right now. Well, that worked perfectly for me because I um, was able to push super, super hard in the fall, get an offer by the winter, make a decision. And then when I got pregnant in the spring, I knew where I was going after. And I was able to focus like more intensely on my classes and not worry about applying to jobs at the same time. Hmm. So then every opportunity I had I took classes um, during breaks and I took more classes than, than what was expected at some point so that I could finish my entire class load by the summer, start working as early as possible and really leave an impression before I left for maternity leave um, and, and leave the, the role I was in, in a good, the team I was leading in a, in a good place before I took some time off and and then jumped back in. Yeah. Wow. Did you find some days you were just completely exhausted? Yeah. Having my <laughs> husband bounce back and forth. I mean, I was, that's why when, when people say, oh, the MBA is so fun. I'm like, the MBA for me was so hard. It was really <laughs> yeah. intense. Like it, it was really hard. And I was taking on some classes that were more quantitative than what I'd done since high school. So it was challenging. Like I remember reading through this book and my, and, and just telling my husband, none of this is sticking. Like none of this is sticking. And I've read every single word on this page. And my husband who went to med school goes, well, it sounds like you have to read it again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh, he's probably right. Um, So yeah, I was, I was tired and because he was back and forth between the U.S. In Oxford, I also worked super, super hard in these two week sprints. And then when he would get there, would kind of take a breath and take a break. But when I went to Oxford, I had the intent of traveling every other weekend and just making my way around Europe. And it didn't happen that way for me between getting pregnant and trying to finish quickly. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, for sure. Wow. What What a journey. Um, and this relates well to your third principle is designing your career around your life because you designed your schooling around your life, or at least designed your MBA schooling around your life for sure. Um, anything else that we haven't touched on around this principle that, that you'd like to mention? I think I've talked a lot about it. I think in terms of like institutional ways that we allow people to design their career around our around mm-hmm. lives, there's like a lot of distance we need to move to make this more doable. For example, if you look for post-MBA 
more professional roles and use the word part-time in Utah, nothing comes up. Um, right now there's this huge need for operations professionals and business professionals. And so I've gotten a lot of LinkedIn requests and, and I've tried to start the conversation lately with how would you feel if I worked 20 hours a week? Uh And it's amazing. It's like a mic drop ends the conversation. Really? Wow. (laughs) In almost every situation. And I think that it's because it's so hard for companies to conceptualize a professional career and a track that would be half as fast. And I think that would be so useful if you could just have a role that's still professional where you spend half the time. I know an attorney who graduated from Harvard who was doing that. And he, he had a, you know, a wife who stayed home with the children, but he just wanted more time at home. He didn't really want to be on the fast paced, big firm um, schedule. And so he just asked for half time. I'll move half as quickly in my career. I'll get half the pay. And they said, okay. And I think pathways like that would, would help this concept um, work out in reality much more easily. But yeah, design your career around your life probably a huge luxury for most people to even like consider designing the schedule of their job around their life needs and their desires to be around their children. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I mean, one person who's done this really successfully is actually my husband. He knows he wants to be home with our family doing fun things um, at some point during the week. And so with both of his um, most recent jobs has worked to negotiate a schedule where it's busier during the week, but he takes off part of Friday. Mm-hmm. And at Qualtrics, when I came back from maternity leave, I was able to work with my boss to design a path where I would work 30 hours a week. And then I remember spending like a lot of my energy and thinking about my job shifted from, you know, how am I going to get the bonus? How am I going to perform? Like, really well to thinking, how am I going to work, um, fulfill the expectations of my team and my boss, um, be a great manager to my team, but also spend as much time with my, my new infant daughter as possible. How am I going to reduce the time that she's spending with non-family members? And this is a conversation I have with a lot of women who are working because by the time I left, I had really maximized my schedule to the point where I was working from 5 a.m. to noon every day. And my husband didn't leave to work until 8.30 or 9. And so he would watch the kids until he left. And our children or our our child at that point was in really minimal childcare for the amount that I was working. And then because my husband had off on Fridays, I would go into the office that during that time. Um, and I worked with my boss to figure out how this would, how this would work, but it reduced the amount of time. My daughter was in childcare, gave me more time with her. And honestly, it wore me out, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but, but, um, I think it's worthwhile to think about what you want your relationships to look like with the people around you, with your spouse, with your friends, with your children. And this is becoming more normal probably with COVID and and people balancing 
home and work, you know, in the same space for the past year. But I think it's a worthwhile thing to think about as you design your career, not just how much money do I want to make, but how much time do I want to spend with the people who I care about and what time, what time of day do I want to spend with them? And how, how can we make these things work together? Yeah. Yeah. And I love that, you know, we sort of have these uh, set paradigms just as a society that even things like the pandemic, you know, there's always this feeling of, yeah, you should go to the office to work, but that's really caused organizations to think, well, maybe we don't. And how, how would that work? And, and a lot of our continuing that uh, strategy is, is maybe we're coming out of the pandemic, but. Uh, oh it, yeah. It's yeah. bounced us like leaps and bounds ahead, ahead in that area. Like when I negotiated to work as a manager, but be um, from home at certain points, post-maternity leave, I was told I was like the only manager in the organization doing that. And then like the month before I left, every manager switched to that model of working completely remotely. Nice. Because of COVID. It wasn't just your sole influence. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> nice. Very cool. Uh, the next principle you put is social impact. Think small. What do you mean by that? This is a concept that like I started coming across as an undergrad. And I think because like it continues to repeat in my life as a pattern. So so many of my fellow students as an undergrad were interested in making a positive impact in the world. I think it's like at the root of, of social activism and it's grown so much as like a concept for millennials, like being involved socially, um, posting your social beliefs on social media, finding ways to make a difference, like, in your career, you know, in, in your neighborhood. But a lot of times I find people commenting on national issues, commenting on national elections, um, but kind of neglecting issues that are more local and closer to them. And I think there's so much power when people take the energy they have to do good and they look at the people around them, like closest to them, because we're so much better equipped to understand the real issues of our of our closest neighbors. Again, I mentioned at Oxford, there was this big push for social impact. And um, at Humanitarian Experience for Youth, there was a movement within the organization and continues to be to, to do social impact work in a way that's more responsible. It's really hard to get it right when you're traveling to other countries and you don't fully understand the culture and you don't understand how, you know, sending, sending people there is going to change their way of life. You know, you're not entirely sure if it's all going to be positive. You hope so. Um, but when you help a neighbor or when you, you help a close friend or someone in your family or um, people who live in the same city as you, who might be struggling financially, you just have so much more context to do it right. And more of your energy goes to helping them instead of figuring that all out. Um, so I've, I've liked being involved with my HOA in this way, just because, you know, in a year where politics has been really complex, you know, in a half decade, decade of yeah. time when politics has been complex and sometimes frustrating, you realize 
how much really needs to be done in your own neighborhood. Like that's not getting done. Yeah. Yeah. We typically worry about the leadership furthest away from us when in reality, the the closer the leadership, the more impact it has on us. And that's usually happening in our community, even though the drama usually happens on those large scale uh, stages. But uh, but sort of refocusing and regrouping and focusing on the the uh, the social impact that's happening right around you that you can actually impact and reach. Yeah. Anything uh, else as far as, as social impact you want to mention? I could probably change this first word from social impact to leadership too. Leadership is something that MBAs love to talk about. And, you know, is leadership the same as management? Is management the same as leadership? Like, where do you do which? And, and I feel like leadership is like this golden word in an MBA program. Everyone wants to be a leader at some point. I remember at Oxford, something like 50% of the class that I was in applied for formal leadership roles within the class. And when you got onto a team, everyone wanted to be the leader. They wanted Mm -hmm. to be in charge. But then when the actual work needed to be done, (laughs) they weren't always like willing to put in the extra hour. They weren't always willing to do the nitty gritty part to make sure the paper was written well, to make sure it made sense. And like, I think true leadership is like often boots on the ground. Like it's not just talking the talk, it's walking the walk. It's making sure things get through the finish line. And so with leadership, think small too. Like it's not always the grandiose title and, and being given that title. I mean, sometimes it's informal ways that we're changing um, the place we live in for the better. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Uh, The next principle is know your strategy when it comes to, uh, getting an MBA. Have we, we touched on that a little bit, but is there more to add? Yeah, I think that was like my strategy for getting an MBA was I wanted to go to a school that was prestigious, that was filled with diverse and interesting classmates. Um, but the, the thing about Oxford that worked really well for me was the duration and, um, and, and also the focus on social impact. Living internationally was a huge perk. It was really fun. And, and then once I got into the MBA, so know your strategy when you are determining where to apply. Um, if you want to work in certain fields, certain schools are going to be better. So talk to people who've gone to those schools and ask, you know, I want to be at a top three consulting firm. I want to work in finance you know, are people at your school doing that? And if so, how are they getting there? And once you get into this, to the MBA, know your strategy, what do you want to come out of it? Like, and what do you need to do to, to get that outcome? So I knew I wanted to work in Utah, the office for um, career support. They weren't going to help me. They didn't have connections in Utah. Like I was going to have to drum that up myself. (laughs) So I worked through LinkedIn. I worked through friends I knew who were working in Utah. Um, So know your strategy and then work through it so you can get what you want coming out. And I talked to someone about this recently, but it's like those problems on standardized tests where you have like a machine and they give you the input and the output of the machine. And then they say, what's the machine doing to create this output? Like know what you want, know what your input is, be realistic about what's going into the program, know what you want for your output, and then figure out which machine you need to get in to get there. And 
like sometimes you'll have to spend an extra year working or, you know, get a better score on the GMAT to get into that MBA program. But if you really know you want that output coming out of the MBA, then it might be worth it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Uh, last principle you have is uh, the best people don't always fit into your box. How did you learn that? <laughs> For this podcast, I'm so much younger than the other people being interviewed. <laughs> And so much earlier on in my career. So my principles are still kind of in progress being learned. Mm -hmm. This is something I wanted to share with other people as they look at resumes. Like I had what I would call probably a non-traditional business resume, even after graduating from Oxford, because my career had been in nonprofit. The nonprofit I worked for wasn't a big name. So it wasn't easy to understand what I did. And so if someone said, we need to have someone who's worked at this type of company, they would have completely overlooked my resume. But I thought it was a perfect training ground for business management. Like my boss had been a tech founder, an ex-McKinsey consultant. Um, he, He was the founder of the organization and had worked with me fairly closely. And because... I was at this very small organization. I'd been able to interact really closely with the types of problems you probably wouldn't typically get until much later in your career. Um, There's a lot of nuance to people's stories. And I'm totally like guilty of not doing this and of sorting resumes based on GPAs because... You know, you just don't have time to get through them all. But even when you're sorting, if you're looking for for the kinds of candidates you haven't gotten before, for the kinds of candidates who bring diversity, who are going to um, help your team be, be more innovative, you might have to change your search terms and look for things you've never looked for before. And I also think there are these huge areas in the applicant market that we sometimes entirely ignore. And the one that I'm most familiar with, because I'd done research on it as an undergrad and then at Oxford, and now I'm really living it, is um, women who have, for some reason, or people who have, for some reason, taken a career break and and specifically to um, care for their children or family members, there's something like a 37% loss of earning power. if you take three or more years out of the workforce, I think it's for people who are um, in in the business field. And um, what that shows to me is we're discounting experiences that don't fit the norm um, and maybe missing out on some really fantastic candidates because what they're being offered is just so below what they're capable of. Um, and so that's... That's my little plug, maybe for myself and other women like me and for our moms who might be, you know, also trying to get back into the workforce who are talented, who are, um, you know, um, who could be amazing contributors at a company. Like think about their on-ramps. That's a term that comes from a, from an HBR article. But think about ways to bring in these these awesome people to your organization Maybe they need a little extra training. Maybe they'll start in a in a different role. Maybe you'll structure their role differently, or maybe 
you know, you structure more part-time roles so that they never have to leave. Yeah, that's awesome. And because uh, just getting creative about these things, like you said earlier, even, you know, considering a 20 hour work week, um, when, you know, when we approach these these different applicants and and really trying to see the the value they offer rather than well do they fit into our structure or how how things are laid out or you know we can find a lot of hidden talent that can they can bless the world that that don't have the opportunity right now because i was part of this youth organization i became friends with tons of teenagers at that time like male and female and then tons of young adults who are our trip leaders just awesome exceptional like powerful people. And it's interesting because I've, I've written recommendations for both the men and women, but there, there's this group, there's this moment that happens for a lot of LDS women that I haven't had this kind of outreach for LDS men where they reach out to me and they say, I just got married or I'm thinking about getting married or I've been married for a while. And now I'm thinking about having kids and I'm wondering how that fits into my career plan. I think LDS women, they just have this internal conflict when it comes to wanting to care for your children, but also to have a stimulating and interesting you know, career or hobby or, or pursuit outside of that. That I don't think presents itself as strongly to most LDS men. My sister was talking to me about this recently. She's like, it is so hard as LDS women to think about what our careers might look like if we take a break or, you know, if we want to have a career and, and then we pursue that full out, like, will we be judged for not taking on our mothering role strongly enough? And she said, where where are the good role models? And luckily I've, I've seen some amazing women do it. I mean, one of the women who's on the Latter-day Saint MBA board was on one of my HGFY trips. And I remember her giving a fireside where, where she said, I was a VP of the organization where I was working and I got some flack from people in my church community because I was the breadwinner and my husband had take t- taken time away. She's like, I didn't let it bother me. They don't ask about it in the temple recommend interview. They don't ask about whether or not you're working. It's not something that will qualify you for <laughs> the yeah. career path you choose. And as I was talking to my sister about it, she doesn't have kids. I think the, the part that often goes overlooked in these discussions about what to do how to keep women in the workforce, how to have a fulfilling life as a woman, whether you can do things at the same time is, I think it is more complex for women. But I also sometimes think it's a little bit, you, it's, there's just so much joy there in being with your children. And that's not always what's captured. I think it, it probably, you know, I think it counteracts the, com- the complexity and the difficulty all the joy that you get from being a mom, like from getting to be with your kids, whether you're working full-time or not, like it is more complicated sometimes to be a woman, like when it comes to career. But it is just so satisfying to be a parent that I think it's worth it. I've got one last question. And that is, if you were in a room full of 
MBA students or professionals, uh, Latter-day Saints and, you know, professional business, what, what final encouragement would you give to that group of people? I'll rephrase like some incredible counsel that I was given as part of a congregation listening to Clayton Christensen. He was speaking to Latter-day Saint singles in the Boston area. And he said something along the lines of, we have not been asked to do the equivalent of the Mormon trail as modern members of the church. And sometimes our lives are comparatively easy, but don't, don't live an easy life. It's not as fulfilling. Find challenges, like find places who need your expertise. Like if you are a Latter-day Saint business leader or MBA student or MBA graduate, you have had so many privileges that have led you to that point. And with great power and great privilege comes great responsibility. So don't live an easy life. <laughs> like find people who need you. Don't wait for a calling. Like pray to your heavenly father and receive personal revelation about what your life calling will be. And that might change moment to moment or progress as you keep asking that question. And you might get the answer line upon line, precept upon precept. And the answer is do this this year, do this this week. As you ask that question and listen, and then are willing to take on the challenges that, that will present themselves to you, you will grow. And those are the moments that are most fulfilling. And, and that's how we become more like God. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.